Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. In this episode, we're joined by Andrew Packer, the EHS Excellence Director for GlaxoSmithKline Consumer Healthcare. With 25 years global experience, Andrew is an operational safety and wellbeing specialist, culture designer, and thought leader. Andrew is passionate about innovation and leading organizational cultural change, and as a result, has provided transformational strategic programs for some of the biggest multinational companies and organizations in 158 countries. Welcome, Andrew, and um, and thank you for joining me today. So what I really want to start off with is... You know, you've been at Accord Healthcare now for coming up to six years. Um, I really want to know how did you get there? What was your what was your journey along along the way to uh, to being where you are now? I first started out as a wee whippersnapper out of university with um, AstraZeneca, and I, I was part of their AstraZeneca um, graduate program. So I finished up in environmental chemistry, and um, I went and worked within the uh, environmental health and safety uh, laboratory uh, that they have at one of their manufacturing sites in Bristol. And um, I stayed with AstraZeneca for a couple of years, and uh, oh, I stayed in that role for a couple of years. And I basically went to, it was about the same time as Coma came out, so the new mm-hmm. the coma regulations and I had some experience in modeling plume dispersal and this type of things and that came into use with um, uh, with coma in terms of uh, the facilities that I was working with were large chemical facilities with large uh, inventories of uh, volatile compounds and, and, and large aspects for fire and stuff so I got kind of adopted into the, the, the corporate wing of the EHS function for AstraZeneca and looking at uh, emergency planning for each of those sites so that's kind of how I got my first in foray really into into safety quite by accident you say adopted yeah <laughs> in, adopted in a positive oh, way in a very or, positive um... way so um so so when i left university i was i was a pure chemist so i had uh, i had basically i was i was looking at water uh, soil and air pollution that's what i was doing and uh, and as a result of a, uh, a a twist of fate with the coma aspects um i got pulled into that that working group and um as a result of that i got my knee bosh which used to be straight into NEBOSH, you don't do that anymore, but I, you, know, you do the certificate and then do the NEBOSH now, but um, I did uh, the two-part NEBOSH um, and ended up working uh, in the central EHS function. And then basically it grew from there. So I ended up working for the project engineering group, which led me to working with the design and management of different facilities and the um, uh, the uh, everything from sort of laboratory R&D scale and up towards um, uh, large facilities management, always around the industrial hygiene, uh, EHS, coma management, those type of things. So sort of sort of EHS from a from a chemist chemical background basically. Um, I spent a couple of years in engineering, and then worked for another company which took me into. Uh, Doosan, and um, from Doosan, I, I, I spent time in the oil and gas industry, uh, chemicals, uh, crikey, pharmaceutical aerospace, steam steamships, oh god, everything else really. Su- nuclear submarines was fantastic. So, so you're, you're, you're ticking off the most of the list of the high risk. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I only work in high. Well, actually, you both, you know, where you work in these environments which have got such such high control requirements, you know, you're focusing on, t- you know 
top tier com coma site aspects or or, um, or or quite significant risks. But where do the riddle, where do the riddles happen? They all happen in the sleep trip and fall space. They all happen in the yeah, in the in the seven day LTA space. They all happen in the uh, in the uh, employee slams their finger in a cage and is off for seven days. You know, it it is it is frustrating actually <laughs> it's a, well but yeah. well, yes but if you were going to pick and choose what you'd prefer well, to cause a absolutely cause a problem, yeah of course uh, of course you know so <laughs> major release of uh, of substances not so much <laughs> so so uh, essentially what where, where that brought me to was um a few years in in multi-industry went into consulting and joined a number of consultancies and, and worked up through those bits and pieces had a large uh sort of footprints and then ended up ended up ended up accord sounds wrong i uh, chose to come out of consulting back into mainstream pharma opportunity presented itself yeah when you went into consulting from being uh you know part of a team within an organization what did you find that was the you know what, what kind of surprised you or what did you have to adapt to when you were kind of the person you know giving out advice across you know perhaps multiple clients rather than uh, and and having perhaps i mean less influence but um you know p- perhaps not being as influential so it's it's quite a ch- quite a weird change because what i ended up doing most of the time certainly in the early days was was speaking to people problem solving as an operational safety professional so I actually spent, rather than talking to them like a consultant, I would talk to them like an operational, you know, hang on a second, what, what do you mean that you haven't, you can't do X, Y, and Z? What about this, this, and what's written in your SOPs? And um, how, how's your, you know, how's your lockout tagout program and how does that work? And, and I suppose really it was beneficial from a, from a consulting perspective because I managed to get into the root of the problem quite quickly. But from that operational excellence process that I built up over all of those years of working within these, these, these high-risk industries, it always used to kind of confuse me as to why we were giving advice at that particular level. Uh, and so there's, there's a couple of things with consulting. One, obviously, you're, you're going in there to provide a service that that particular company can't do or doesn't have or, or is outsourced for whatever reason. And the second piece is you really want to be able to keep that particular company as a customer. So you want to be able to offer them other other services and other bits and pieces further on. Now, as a safety professional, that's difficult because that's not how we operate in operations. You know, so basically we, we operate to a program. We've got all these bits and pieces. What we don't want is, con- is consultants contacting us and saying, do you want to, can I show you the new demo of this? Can I, you know, but actually, so what it really gave me was the ability to talk in context about those aspects. So where we would look at, I don't know, lockout, tagout systems or whatever. And then we'd be talking, well, actually, you know what, what the natural, natural, uh, the natural stepping stone from this is um, cultural behavioral safety because you've got the, the process systems. Now you need the behavioral systems. So what are you doing in that space? So I suppose, uh, it, it, what did I take from op- consulting back to, back to operations? Because I've done that a couple of times. I think really it's that piece around structuring a problem and giving it the resource that it needs because a lot of the time in in a, in the safety space as a sa- as a safety practitioner on a site or in, in charge of a, a region you are time poor you've got lots of conflicting um, priorities and to, to be able to have somebody to blue sky think that piece and say well actually here's your gold level idea here's your silver level idea here's your bronze level idea and this is what your resource looks like, and we will go away and we will deliver that. That's hugely, hugely important. As long as you can get backing from the business, that's, that's hugely important. And some things are best done by specialists. So now you're, um, 
your accord and you know you've, you've built up this um, body of body of works lots of different industries high risk what are you doing with your time at the moment so at the moment um, spending time with the AMR AP, uh, PIE piece so essentially um, antimicrobial resistance and pharmaceuticals in the environment piece that's a that's an area of uh, focus well it's really around working to the framework of antibiotics in, in, in the environment and seeing how we can reduce our overall supply chain impact on those type of things so we do a study we do a, um, some you know sampling studies and other bits and pieces in that space the other pa- aspect that we're looking at is you know is mental health and mental well-being that's uh, another piece that we're looking at as a company and uh, really spend most of my time negotiating and navigating around bringing the company uh, along on its journey with 14 and 45,001. So we've 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 got 40, 14 and 45,001 at our Barnstable sites. We've got them at, we've got 14 at our um, at our Forden site. We're like um, actually hopefully going to be going for 45,000 on that site as well. So, you know, in terms of um, management systems, we we're in the right-hand side of the Bradley curve, if you will. So, we're in that sort of third to fourth space. Um, and then there's, you know, in terms of other things that, that to, we can bring to that is uh, software and other bits and pieces. So we're, we're just looking at software across um, across the EMEA for things like uh, display screen equipment, um, ergonomic issues and those type of things. So it, it's very much, I would say, the the right hand side of that curve. And, you know, and certainly from my perspective, my my ex- expertise is probably the wrong word, but my my passion really is around that, that culture change, that um, human factors uh, way of thinking about EHS rather than the systems building. You know, you get the systems built and then it's around the management the management of people. And I, and I think it I think it's fair to say that for most you know most professionals in our industry we're we're you know we're very good at that first first side of it and the you know the, the second side of it seems to be kind of a bolt-on that you 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 get either because you fall into it or at some point we're like maybe i need to kind of increase the range of of skills i need to need to have and and i suppose so then you, you know during the during the pandemic which we've been you know involved in heavily for the last two years do you do you find that kind of your profile um or your your you know your department your team's profile has been raised because you've people have needed more from you they've looked to you to say yeah help, help us help steer us through this um the 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 covid uh approach uh, certainly at accord and other areas has been around a cross-functional approach and i think really in terms of steering that that thing we, we can't be the the expertise in that area um however that said um the uh, the tech the tech the the risk assessments the the processes have have come through uh, us as a as a deliverable um, we get a lot of questions uh, certainly around things like PPE and um, and distancing and other bits and bobs um, hand washing infrared oh, I don't know temperature managing <laughs> you know we and, and I think really the, the at the early phase of the pandemic it was really it was almost like um, so my grandfather um, uh, used to work in a uh, government um, department during the Second World War, and they were known as the Weezers and Dodgers. Essentially, um, he worked for Charles Fraser mm-hmm. Smith, and um, who actually was the person that is mirrored in Ian Fleming's uh, books as Q from James Bond. That's where that that thing came oh, from. Right, okay. so he worked yeah. in that department yeah, yeah. with that guy. And um, and why am I telling you this? Uh, because it, it, they had to come up with these outlandish things, and and everybody had a new way of a new idea. You know pigeons flying planes and all this stuff and so we went through an element of that 
um, at the early stages of the, of the pandemic because you think that the source material wasn't there. We had to identify um, from all of the literature. We had to pull out um, uh, things around mask safety. We had to pick pick, pick around uh, droplets, and and every every two days there was a new factor that we had to fit, you know factor in. So whilst the the main uh, thrust of the COVID uh, precautions and stuff came through a, a group BCM filter, business continuity filter uh, of, of each of the sites. Behind the scenes, we were all at each of the, you know, each of the facilities and each of the company, we we're all generating these things to, to hit the filter, to decide what the, what the, what the progress was going to be to, to go out the door. So, yeah, I don't know whether it improved our, our, um, our perception. Certainly, it's, it's certainly broadened the range of stuff that I think people understood that we did. And I think that's a different piece, you know. So, um, you know, no normally we're, we are the fire extinguishers, chair guys, you know, and because um, that's the most, <laughs> that's the most, uh, you know, the eyewash bottle guys, because that's the, the majority of people's contact with us. So they either come into contact with us as the result of having an accident or they would come into contact with us as a result of training or they come into contact with, with us as regards to things like, I need a pregnant worker risk assessment, young person's risk assessment, uh, occupational health review, those type of things. So it, I think it broadened, and you know, none of us were virologists, we're all chemi chemistry and industrial hygiene specialists. So, <laughs> so no, 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 okay. if you do chemistry, you do physics and biology, right? We had to learn all that stuff as well. So it was, it was, um, it was, you know, sort of that, that whole swan thing of, yeah, okay, well, here's a system, here's a, here's a COVID risk assessment. Um, and we had all these processes in place a couple of months before they, 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 they would come out uh, from the HSC or from the government. And then we'd have to then, you know, overnight at five o'clock in the morning, you know, go through the whole thing and then reboot it all and then reissue new guidance. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I have unfortunately done the same thing for a, a number, a number of yeah. times. Yeah. And a bit, although I don't know about you, but I found like I was almost I could almost second guess what was coming. You know, like, oh, where do you think this is going to go? Mm, well, and then yeah, a couple of a couple of weeks later. And so that... we were very fortunate to work with um, a number of colleagues that had um, access into the you know the the, the, the medical side of the, the business and the, the bits and pieces. So we had a lot of technology coming that way. Um, we were quite early adopters uh, through a corporate process of um, uh, antigen testing on the sites. So it was fairly wait wait. I think that was. I think it was something like September or October 2020. We we implemented that. You know, in terms of in terms of the trying to protect the core businesses, as because uh, again we were what are called yeah, um, key workers. So you know, and and we're protecting the supply of medicines into the NHS, of course. So yeah, in, interesting times. Okay, and so just coming back to sort of mental health and well-being, then. Um, so you'd have had some programs in place, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, started but have you found that I know we're, we're coming out the other end of it um, how has the last kind of two years influenced the approach to that and do we think you know going back to that being kind of a bolt-on for, for health and safety professionals do you think that that's something that we now need to you know look at from from a health and safety professionals point of view that should that be should mental health and well-being really be you know part of our bread and bread and butter enable enabling us to have a kind of a broader approach I think we need to have a, a a clear understanding of what it brings to the table. I think um, uh, mental health and well-being has come to the forefront in the last two years. I think purely because of the isolation aspects of people, you know, people isolating from home, quarantining, all of this type of stuff. Um, Work-life balance has changed, and uh, it will never go back to what it was. Um, you know, the way that uh, way that 
we do our jobs and other people do their jobs now has fundamentally changed because it had to. And I think people value value companies that that take that seriously now, you know, and certainly from our perspective, you know, moving forward into the 45,003 space, maybe in the next few years, you know, the sort of the the ISO around the mental health and well-being piece. um, I think what we had in place originally in many companies that I, I saw. Okay, so let's not just specifically talk about where I work now, but let's just talk, you know, was was that that there was probably a fairly well developed stress policy, you know, that dealt with um, acquisition and understanding of of workplace stress and those type of things. But what became invisible for a lot of companies um, was that that workplace stress, rather than being seen in the workplace, was behind the microphone and the FaceTime and the Microsoft Teams, right? It's what happened in the home. Yeah. And so I think it, it does have an impact on on people people's safety because um, people make make choices based on their own self interest as a result of that, and self interest is the root of all incidents as we think. So if you think of if you think of I was just doing just crossing the road there because I needed to do you know or you know, those type of things. I think people are more are pushing back a little bit on rules and regulations um, because I think they've had enough of the confusion through through COVID. And I think also there, there is an element there where they, we really need to think about how we best support employees to be happy rather than do we have an important and, uh, and far-reaching well-being program. It's, it's are our employees happy and healthy? And if they're happy and healthy, they will be productive employees. So we need to start thinking of it in those terms. That's a really interesting way to, to, to look at it is that we, we often use, you know, it's well-being as if that's a, oh, it's okay, we've got a well-being program, you know, we do all these things. That's great. Um, so do your people actually like coming to work? But we've got a well-being program. To them. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that's that's for me, like when I'm, when I'm talking about what, what are the values of a business or what values are, you know, for you, it's about, well, yeah. Do your people actually like coming to work or do they love coming to work or do they just get up and think, oh, yeah, it's work today. And it's amazing how you can influence that. And, you know, I, I talk to people now and I think, well, you say this, but I don't know that I believe you. There's this uh, happiness um, quotient almost. There's this, there's this piece where you think, what am I... Um what are my drivers for coming to work? How do I how do I interact with my my colleagues? Am I well supported by my manager? Am I what's my positive contribution to this process? Right, and I think that has a, sh- a huge impact on people's happiness, and happiness has a huge impact on safety, because um, if you've got employees that feel supported, if you've got employees that are well trained and and, uh, and are given the resources that they need, they they they, they are more likely to um, to behave compliantly to the processes and to think of their own and other safety, right? That, that, that keeping uh, your brother's keeper type thing. Whereas if you don't show love and you don't lead by example and you don't collaborate with them, then you enter into this, uh, this finite kind of relationship, this transactional relationship, which is they will do the minimum they need to do to get by. And we don't want that. No, 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 no company does well with that. No. And it's, and it's kind of, I think for me, it's, it's just accepting the fact that it's not like you've got, work and you've got home and those things yeah okay in, in the past they've been definitely they're two separate things you know come to work if you've got home problems that's fine just don't, don't yeah. we just don't yeah, want to yeah. know about them no but but now it's like well you know accepting that people will at times in their life go through real tough times and i've always thought it's testament to who you know you are as a business or as individuals of how do you treat people when they're they're going through the lowest points you know that's that's what people really remember you know in that actually you know you don't need to be here today you know, I can tell, you know, just 
go and do well, what I you think need you to do. Talk, you can talk in terms of your own your own teams in that respect, can't you? Because you know, I mean, my my own team. I'm very fortunate that I have a, a very uh, experienced and very friendly, lovely team that I that I, I work with. And um, uh, in terms of uh, that that dynamic, you know, it it really does foster a um, the the new term is vulnerability, right? So it's not about oh, I'm, I'm afraid of everything, but it's actually about look, I'm. I'm here to listen. I'm willing to make, you know, willing, I make mistakes. I understand you guys are going to make mistakes. And the, the, the important thing is that we learn from them and move forward. And those are the So I think, you know, having a, having an, an environment like that, where it's just, it is mutually supportive. It, you become your family at work, right? So I think of mum as my work family. And when you take that you, you know you take somebody like that of yourself then then you're part of it and it, and you don't want to do any damage to yourself you don't want to do any damage to the relationship it's like when you come home and have an argument uh, as a as a family over what you're going to have for tea but then everybody's happy with what you have for tea at the end of it you know it's it's not necessarily <laughs> you say that it's interesting the amount of conversations i actually have about with the team yeah, about exactly. what we're having for dinner right? so but but the point i'm making is so there will be these little fluctuations and these little disagreements but as as a team uh, if you can resolve them and go with the, the, the finalized outcome, you know, you can have the debate, but this is, you know, once we decide what we're going to do, that's what we're all, stick, all sticking to. People feel, people, people feel supported and they feel they have a voice. And if people feel supported and they feel they have a voice, they are more happy at work. Okay, so how do you then, you know, take that and how do you get that consistently applied across a large organization? Because you as a manager, you know, and as a leader, you've got your own, you know, and your own principles, your values to try and build that family, which is brilliant. But we might have new managers. We might have managers with, um, you know, zero empathy, uh, and they their teams look at it and think, well, oh look at look at the blue skies over there at that team. But I'm over here in the in, in the team with with the rain clouds above me. How do how how does that work? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Really, I suppose let's 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 um, let's talk about uh, again in uh, industries in general. I think probably the easiest way, and and certainly the work that I've been involved with over my career. And and I would say that there are kind of there are five main drivers. I would say, right. So it, how do you how do you influence uh, a, a, an organisation across the board? And I would say there's five there's kind of five main main topics. So the first is one that you could kind of loop into I don't know um, learn teach develop grow right. So this is this piece around supporting the employees or the, the staff members or the team members development as a person right development in terms of skills development in terms of business conscience and uh, and acumen and those type of things right because they need to fit in the business they're in. Um, the other thing is that whether or not that team member is able to or providing that those those team members with the ability to create platforms for collaboration. OK, so how do they how do you as a manager ensure your teams are collaborating internally and externally to the environment? So um, are they are they uh, sitting on those those, you know, those weekly walk in walk arounds? Are they having those conversations with those leadership uh, line, line managers, those type of things? Leading by example. So actually trying to show that that's you know the third one is around leading by example. So showing people that they uh, that um, uh, to show empathy not only with uh, you know I mean uh, Simon Sinek he talks about empathy and perspective right. So he talks about finite and infinite thinking and but essentially what it means is take uh, understanding where those challenges are with each of your customers with each of the people that you're working with. So that might be a team member in your own team could be the head of production it could have be the the engineering manager whatever it is and understanding how you can best challenge channel those those changes there's two as two other aspects which is promoting enterprise thinking 
and uh, and driving results and really so results is about having the skill will and the focus and the focus is around what, what what's the team direction what are their in, internal drivers what they well, how, how do they how do they contribute themselves to that overall goal right and then the um, breakthrough results piece is really around celebrating when you when you've had a, a win or had had a good outcome and bringing that back to the fold so with my team, I will ask them, you know, I meet with my team on a, on a daily basis. We'll all talk about, you know, anything that needs to be flagged, but also anything that's gone well. Um, if it didn't go well, how, how could it go well again? And we get that sort of peer feed in, uh, those type of things. And that really sort of just gels the team. But we're not always talking about work. It might be in a work context, but we're more so interested in, you know, how their holiday went. Feel, I felt like a human, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because we've all got a job to we've all got a job to do, but we are we were all people, and I've always been a big believer of you know try and ask try and ask people one thing every day that's not work not work related because it kind of gets you into that you know, into that habit. And when we're trying to you know when I was talking there about sort of the the work and the and the personal life, it's like it's those things that you pick up that you then pick up on. I think well, okay, oh, you've got you know child who's doing this this way. that might that might be a bit stressful, you know, but just being conscious of being conscious of that and being in the you know, in the moment and being able to say resonate with with people because we've all got you know got our own lives as well and we might have our own our own pressures that at times you know I think as you you said there touched on the vulnerability you know if there's something going through and that you're you're prepared as a leader to kind of be vulnerable in front of other other people it you know you like to think that you can get that that coming backwards it is a you know it is a, it is a put something out there and hopefully that the other person will will reciprocate and it doesn't work in every context obviously but it as you say you know you you've got you do have folks that are incredibly data driven and they don't necessarily show empathy they may have empathy and they may be deeply affected by something that happens but they don't show it and so i suppose to an individual that then is more used to wearing their heart a little on their sleeve uh, those type of things those individuals can seem a little cold right they're not necessarily that's not necessarily the case but if we foster a relationship with our team where they can show vulnerability and they can show you know oh actually i didn't know the answer to that question and i was i was thinking about that same thing myself um how are we going to fix it and then you know it's not about everybody's got to be the expert in the room that's not that's not how we work things things you know that's that's otherwise we there'll be one of us sat in the room we'd all be computers and that'll be it you know how do you find or how do you get those if you like the more the more junior people who are kind of coming into that world to kind of feel comfortable to be able to you know input because there's we've all been there when we when we're the new person and and or like when you're in a, when you're in a training course and you're thinking of that question you're like uh, you start to put your hand up and you think, oh, don't really know that I want to. Yeah, how do we get people to, you know, I suppose become psychologically, feeling psychologically safe to be able to, uh, you know, collaborate and contribute? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I suppose from my perspective, in the teams that I've worked with over the many years, I've always tried to foster a mentoring approach and I've always, I, I used to take juniors on a ride on ride alongs with everything you know so you'd basically you join the company you would then end up working with a senior professional and you would go and do you know everything that that person did and after a while you you started to lead the the discussions so when i was um certainly when i was working in consulting certainly i was working before uh, in other companies what i would do is literally i would say right okay we're going to go along we're going to do this audit what we're actually going to do is you're going to do the audit i'm going to stand back and at any point that you know are uncomfortable or whatever 
give me the look yeah and i will i will I'll, I'll step in and i think it's that important piece of though you know you can ask any question you want you can don't worry about making mistakes i've got your back and and it's really not so much i've got your book but nobody's going to nobody's going to give you a hard time it's i've got your back you can make mistakes here you can is it this you know we we are in a situation where i'm the safety net or the the more senior professional is the safety net for you but in order to facilitate your learning your understanding your experience we kind of have to let you run with your with your stabilizers off a little bit and we don't do that on day one you know we don't do oh, here's, 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 your, here's your key card and your and your uh, and your coffee voucher and right you're straight into a meeting about about uh, about about confined space entry can we, can we get you a monogrammed clipboard <laughs> there is an element of of giving the individual the space to fly free whilst giving them a, a safe perch as well you know so uh, and uh, i think i can't speak for the for the team members that i've trained you know trained and i've mentored over the years but certainly i think um if any of them are listening that would probably be be recognized with them you know where i've um uh, not abandoned them <laughs> but, uh, but so i've certainly pushed... we will be putting out a poll later just to, yeah, just to sample that i kind yeah. of pushed them forward into things and said no 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 you can you can handle this you, you're trained in it you go from first principles i'm interested in what you think because i'm i would look at this in one way i'm interested and in, you know the number of times where i've had uh, a colleague or something like that point something out and it's just like they're st- it's so obvious and you've never thought about it all the years of your career you know and you just sit there and you go that's hugely insightful i'm going to use that next time and i've had those discussions you know when we, we've left the meet left the meeting and went look you know the, the debriefing after meetings as well debriefing debriefing your staff on the fact that they've done a good job and here's what i liked about what you said you know so that that is incredibly empowering for people in terms of them understanding one what you're looking for as a business two how their words have been heard by those other people in the room and three you know how that's then translated into action because then it gives them that confidence to make those decisions and assertions in the in the future you know nobody goes into that room trying to make the wrong decision you know no exactly and it's it's more you know i'm a very big believer of empowering people empowering people to make decisions and them understanding you know the impact of those decisions but you know we i tend to we tend to focus a lot on re- rewarding outcomes and i find that we re- we we spend less time looking at rewarding behaviors and and so you your example there about you know debriefing after a meeting it's like do you know what, i really like the way you dealt with that you know that was really really positive or on the, on the flip side look, just an observation here you might want to look at it a different way next time yeah if we'd have done we could we could do this this and this as well or what i do sometimes is i also do x y and z and um it's it's hugely empowering for people you know and i like that I like when 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 I'm you know I'm still learning now I'm not I'm not a, at the end of my journey and in terms of certain uh, industries certain characters in in different scenarios you know you we've all met the difficult exec right we've all met that one oh, of course we've all met the the kind of flippant safety rare we've you know we've we've met those people and when we do meet those people and the conversation doesn't go well then it's kind of it is a learning point it is an opportunity to reflect and think about how we can do things better and and those type of things so i think giving well not even juniors even colleagues you know a bit of feedback Mm -hmm. on it just actual thank yous thank you for coming along to the meeting it went well you did a great job of that Mm. well done yeah and i think i think we never underestimate how much that will influence somebody by just thinking because you know people at times will suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome and you think well no no you need to know you did a great job and that's it. 
that's the end of sentence. And also be a sounding board for them. So they come and go, well, look, I'm thinking of doing, you know, this is the problem. I'm thinking of doing this. And I'm, you know, okay, so walk me through what you're thinking is. What are you thinking of doing? And they'll, they'll lay out a very well thought out plan, you know, and they'll, 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 you know, they'll think about some of the pitfalls and those bits and pieces. And if it's fit for purpose, I try, and sometimes I won't even, I won't even add stuff that I, we could add, right? It's because it's kind of like, well, it would be, then we'd be taking away from their uh, learning curve, their, their ability to, to show that they've, they're able to deliver. You know, because if they've always got to run it past me and I always add something, it, for them, it, they make them feel that what they're producing is never quite good enough. And and so what we'll do is we'll um, I'll let them run with that and then perhaps do a, a phase two, you know, where we go back and look at it in another th- two, three weeks to see if there's any tweaks we can make or whatever. So no, that's and, and, uh, and yeah, I think that's that's really good at also enabling, you know, enabling growth, because, you know, that when you've um, you know, you've got got to position of where you are, Andrew, obviously you can't, you know, you can't clone yourself and have a, a whole team of mini Andrews running, running around. I don't think anybody would want that. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, you you want to have that 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 team. And obviously, you want to impart your you know your wisdom on them. But you know, I, I find great satisfaction in seeing people in seeing people grow when they were you know they were right at the beginning with you when they were really you know there were a million questions, everything they were you know questioning whether or not they can do this or not. And then you take them on that on that journey till you get to the point where you're saying to, when you're saying to them, actually, this this is what I'm thinking. What do you think about what I'm thinking? I think also it's that it's that piece where you you acknowledge their professional level so i've got people that work in my team uh, or work with me in, my, in in our team and they are excellent counsel you know they, for me they are the specialists in their field i am not mentoring them in that respect they are providing me with far better insight and knowledge than i can provide them we're harnessing and we're working as a team to provide the best result that comes out so when we were talking about mentoring new you know, new new IOSH graduates, new new team members, and those type of things, and bringing them on for the journey. We also need to acknowledge the long term technical staff that that day to day basis provide that high quality technical input that means the difference between a safety safety department that does you know all right EHS and then a safety department that does best practice. You know, and I think that's the important thing. So it's not not forgetting those experts as well. And, and still saying thank you and still wishing them a good evening and making sure that they're happy to having a lovely weekend this weekend. But um, Okay. And so I think that leads us into then speaking about new new people on, on journeys. Why would you want to encourage someone to, you know, to work in, in our industry, whether it be fire, health and safety, you know, quality, environmental, you know, all that areas? What what's the draw for people to come and um, you know and come and try this out? Because, you know, as we've di- we've discussed in the in the past often people's journey in 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 that world starts when you know like yours you you had a a profession and then you've you've added that in as you've gone through um so why why start it from the beginning well that's a really really good question um so if i was going to encourage um if i was speaking to uh people that were thinking of getting it into getting into into safety i would say if you want a job that runs throughout any organization at any level um, that's the first piece, you know, EHS, it has no vertical or sideways boundaries. We we, we work with everybody. So in terms of um, understanding how a business works, how a business runs, um, that, you know, it's incredibly, incredibly productive way to um, get that experience within your career. I'm sure HR or QA would say the same thing, but I'm, you know, we're talking about EHS. So, you know, we could, we could afford to be, we could afford to be flippant, right? 
The second thing is it places you in a, in a situation where you're constantly having to evaluate risk. And evaluating risk, whether it's business opportunity risk, whether it's safety risk, whether it's financial risk, it's all roughly the same process. So you're looking at the the uh, the, the incident hazard, you're looking about the control measures, you're looking about offsetting, you're looking about whether we can defer, defer liabilities and all the other bits and pieces. So it, it very much gets you into a business mindset especially if you're using operational controls and operational excellence type, type, type stuff. But it's really interesting. You know, my, my, I've, I've spent 25 years in it, right? I've been, I've been to the Arctic. I've been to the Antarctic. I've been under water in a submarine. I've been uh, in the uh, Gulf oil fields. I've been uh, on the NASA testing site in, uh, in Houston. I've been all over the world in, in the deserts to the top of mountains doing work, you know, and... You can pick your own pathway or you can spend, you know, 60 years working for a banking company in the EHS piece in there. But you, those skill set, that skill set that you learn travels. You can travel all over the world in all different types of disciplines. And I would suggest that people expand into different areas that they don't know. But that's really, you know, it takes you all over the world and you can you can speak the same language. You know, we're talking about solving safety problems in, you know, Nigeria. We're talking about the same issues that we've got in Houston, Texas. We've still got, you know, confined space entry at the Antarctic research stations. You know, there's all of these aspects are universal. And as long as you take it from first principles, you know, the legislation's different, but we all know that. But, the you know, the safety first processes and the risk processes are all the same. So, you know, it can take you all over the world. Why wouldn't you a job why wouldn't you want a job in safety? It's amazing. <laughs> oh, abs- abs- absolutely. I mean, you know, I am slightly biased, but um yeah, no, absolutely it is amazing. Okay, so I have to ask the question now you just, you know, give me that one to uh, uh to pick from then. You've been you've been all around the world. You've seen what's like your wow moment when you were you were somewhere in the world, you got there and you just suddenly thought you took took that pause moment thought Am I really here? Is this really what I do? And is someone paying me to do this? So I can I can I can give you one close to home. So uh, many years ago, I went to a um, uh, an oil refinery, and uh, I was doing some consult. Uh, I was working for a company that was doing some specialist work uh, in a oil refinery, and one of the pieces of equipment is called a, a cracker, a catalytic cracker, right? And it's like a huge, enormous mushroom shaped thing. Okay, and it just basically splits uh, different fractions of um, uh, of oil out to different things, different different uh, length molecules, right? But it was all taken apart, and it looked like an enormous sort of like uh, jigsaw puzzle, as you can imagine, right? Uh, Lego Lego puzzle. And um, I remember I had to go up and do a safety inspection 150 meters up uh, into the into the dome of the mushroom, if you will. It's an enormous thing, right? And um, and I can remember being up there on a two safety wires and uh, sort of balancing on a, on a, uh, a six inch piece of platform. And at that point, that was the, the wow moment for me was, my God, how did I get here? You know, how, how did how did that happen? And yet I was using the same technique, same systems that I would have used in a, you know, a small company or whatever like that. It was no technical build up to that moment in terms of. You know, there was no extra training that I would have had further to anybody else working at height anywhere else. But that was, a, a you know, looking down through the grating 150 metres down. It was a long way up. And <laughs> no, no problems with heights um, then. No, no. And then the other piece would be, um, so when I was I was in the Chotel Jarid in um, 
the desert just outside, uh, well, just in Tunisia. Um, and uh, I can remember being there in the first thing in the morning and it was snowing in the desert and we were working on um, some power generation plants. And it was somewhere in my mind, the sort of sun coming up, the snow, the desert and the other bits and pieces and the equipment we were working on. And it was very much, you know, I got this whole Star Wars feeling to it. Do you know what? I was waiting for Star Wars. <laughs> I got this whole Star Wars <laughs> thing going on. You know, I'm sat there you know, fixing a moisture it's evaporator in the middle Luke, of the Luke Skywalker. Yeah, it was a bit like that. And so, you know, and then that was it. And again, it was that possibility of, you know, I used to do this stuff, you know, in a workshop in Bristol. I'm now in the middle of... The, you know, the, the, from my perspective, you know, the Dune Sea doing this, <laughs> this work in here. And I suppose really, but it's the same fundamental stuff. You know, it's, 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 um, must be the same uh, as being in the military where you, you end up in these weird places, um, doing fairly, uh, you know, doing sort of the, the, the same stuff that you do anywhere else in the world, but you do it in these weird places where you, you know, with all these fantastic architecture. And yeah, it's, it's odd. And um, I think that's what I like about it. I like I used to love the travel aspect. I used to love the um, the meeting meeting different people, going you know different cultures and working on the same programs. You know, I think that pathway is is a lovely thing to do. If if you do it in EHS or you do it in quality or you end up working away, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. No, I I would agree with you. And um, you know, I, I like the piece about you know, your principles piece there. I think a lot of, a lot of people do tend to get a bit. Um, you know, if you if you've started working, say, in the low risk or the medium risk industries, and you you know, you look at the high risk industry and think, oh, you know, I I couldn't really do that, but oh, it's the same process. It does come back though. to principles. Yeah. It is, it is. You 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 might be doing them. You know, the the outcomes if it goes wrong might be um, you know, might be more impactful, but but the ways that you get there, and you know, your risk assessment for um, for your small office, you might be doing yourself, and if we're doing a risk assessment on a nuclear reactor, we might want a team of people there. Um, but you know, they like say the principles are principles are sound the principles are the same you know the and if you you know uh, if you wanted to you work in the i don't know let's say you work in the um the retail industry in the uk you could go and work in the retail industry in america and you'd have the same risk aspects you'd have the same aspect you'd have the same fire you know the manual handling and all of that type of stuff it's all the same because the risk's the same it's just the way that they approach it and the legislation's slightly different but that can be learned everything's a learned skill right so Oh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But your first principles approach will be exactly the same, you know, so. um, And that kind of that kind of that that leads really nicely into into a question then. Um, You know, you've got experience of working with multinational organizations and, um, you know, where you've got to try and uh, have a, you know, an overall global strategy with 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 the AHS. How do you find dealing with the the nuances of the individual countries with um, their own ways of doing it do you do you adopt a principal approach and then um you know everybody customizes it to to what suits them how do you how do you start kind of looking and thinking about that yeah i mean again working back through my career uh, the the approaches that i would take in you know i think the the, the most obvious way to do it is people trying to standardize the this you know they end up with a set of standards or a set of corporate uh intention documents right they 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 this usually that's what what we put in place we put some kind of structure and it's largely based around the either the OSHA system or something like that so that you can um moderate each uh country's um uh, legislation around that i mean that's the how but the the actual um you know but it's it's really starting discussions with the with the leadership at each of those locations each of the sites on each of the countries and establishing firstly what what protections you need at each of those facilities for example if you've got a 
a large manufacturing or manufacturing company, but only two of your manufacturing, you know, you've got a manufacturing site in Germany, you've got a manufacturing site in, I don't know, France, um, and everywhere else is offices, then the majority of the of the risk profile that you're going to need, that's going to consume those people every day is going to be office-based, right? You're going to need very specific around France and Germany, around mechanical handling and, and guarding and permits and all the other bits and pieces, but the majority of it's going to be travel, it's going to be uh, ergo, it's going to be uh, fire safety in the offices, right? So that's what you've, so, so I think firstly, it's it's establishing what controls you want to control at a local level. And then it's about negotiating any differences from that with the, with the, with the country leaders. And I don't mean, the, you know, the, the government, I mean, the actual physical <laughs> people working in country, <laughs> that, right? I mean, that, that'd be interesting, because, wouldn't yeah. it? Because a lot of it is around, um, you know, you can, you, you would have, you wouldn't necessarily have a, you know, I don't know, a, a risk assessment process built around Reg 3. You'd, you would have a uh, an, an evaluation of risks policy or evaluation of risks standard. And you would say, you know, we are, it is our intention to meet these, you know, so identify all risks and then reduce yeah. to load reasonably practicable, implement control measures and then monitor review. And, you know, and so what you would do then is you would take the local legislation, you would say, well, is it better or worse? And as a business, you have to decide whether you are happy for them to go with their own version of it. Um, in my experience, in my, in, in my uh, processes, what I tend to do is say we have to meet or exceed the corporate standards. And because we base them on something like the OSHA or the European standards, there's a general amount of... Um, uh, structure within that that allows us to then say, well, actually, you know, in this particular country, they don't have that particular piece of legislation. So we will adopt the work for a working perspective and auditing and internal internal processes. We adopt that. That can sometimes be a hard sell. All right. So for example, especially when we get into things like waste management, especially when we get into things like um, fire protection, fire protection standards internationally. Fantastic in Europe, fantastic in the States, fantastic in the, you know other pieces. But when we start to get in, into the rest of the world, they can be challenging to meet if you have a corporate standard on it. That isn't, uh, it sounds like a broad blanket statement there where I'm dissing other countries. But what I'm basically saying is it becomes more difficult when you have things like infrastructure requirements and you have owned fire brigades and you have uh, municipal facilities that can't support the fire water that you need to put out of, you know. So there, there, are, yeah. there aren't necessarily challenges at the business level but there might be challenges in the community level and that's where we have to put in things like your CR programs to have that type of thing as well um but that's how I, that's, that's how we would we, we'd normally see it done you know you sort of build to the highest build to the highest um level you can and then work on an equity basis with those countries that can't meet those standards so by working on an equity basis i just simply mean you work more with those countries that can't meet those standards to bring them up to the standard than you work with companies that can countries that can already meet the standard you know so hmm. yeah and and then then once you've you know we're we talking about this as a journey here once you've kind of got you've got that that in place and you've done some work with um how do you then go about kind of doing the measuring side of it that is this actually you know is this actually working um you know would you be expected to be sending people out there to go and actually have a have a look or are we doing sort of so virtually, yeah there's a virtually yeah checking? right that's really again really interesting because the last two years obviously been different right so historically what we would have done is set up a, a you know your sort of your, your global assurance program your performance and assurance program that's basically what 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 contains that is that has your standards and your your global audit so you'd baseline audit the company every so many years, and then you would look to those sites that fell into a high risk category. You'd you'd reduce, you know, you'd see them more often. 
or the ones that scored low on the on the original baseline audit, you have to apply tech on a on an equity basis. Um, but uh, in my experience, we uh, you know I've done global audit programs where I've gone out and audited sites in all over the world with uh, a local area consultant. So that local area consultant will understand the uh, legislation of the areas and also we will work with those company those consultants for a number of months beforehand to do ensure that they also understand the, the company standards uh, and we've used you know fixed term contracts with those individuals we've had that for had the same conversation same consultants for years however um, more recently uh, another way to do it is to do it via uh, self-evaluation so if your self-evaluation tool can be specific enough and people are honest enough you can get some good good data on that, but uh, there is always the, the the problem that people are optimistic in their answers. You know, <laughs> that that was a, that was a politician's answer there. <laughs> there's a there's the, the military use a term called ground truth, and um and mm-hmm. and that's the the sort of term that I've adopted for for the actual walk around the site because you want to see, uh, and what they mean by that is what looks you know what it looks like from the air, what it what the what the intel is telling us versus what it physically looks like on the ground. Right, and um, we've always had, we've all had this. We've all had the um, the the inspectors or the the auditors that come to the site and they go, oh, can you have you got any pictures of your roof? Or have you got any aerial photos? And you do, you pull out the aerial photo to blow the dust off that was taken in 1984, and you go, well, actually, that's different now, and this is different now, and this is different now, and it's really about making sure that those individual sites, especially the the um, sites of high risk or high dependency, um, that the, we're spending time on those sites to establish the ground truth. And to make sure that there, what, what, what we are seeing and experiencing and expecting uh, meets the expectations of the standards, and and we can go from that, you know. But nobody wants to hurt anybody, so you know. No, no, and and for what for you then, you know, going through that program, what does success look like? You know, I know that might take a, yeah. You know, there's, there's having a big big milestone success versus the little successes that you have along the way. Uh, success would be an adoption, a positive adoption by by each of the site locations that they wanted to move forward and understand their their risks right so that's good because they people they basically understand that you could say that any any standard that you that you adopt and meet is you know a positive thing right but um, for success for me really is those uh, is the process by which through spending time with those facilities and encouraging those facilities to improve they then take the reins of that and they manage their own improvement programs beyond that so they're now starting to implement you know programs of their own they're having their own ideas they are um, they've taken ownership of the EHS piece you're not just going back every two years to check you know you're actually being consulted or or asked for uh, support and assistance with uh, the waste program that they want to put in place or um, they've got a really good idea for uh, fundamentally reviewing the fire evacuation process or they've got an idea for um, how they can reduce down the amount of uh, work at height that they're, that they're doing you know so it, it's that piece where you know it's like like a toddler ride or not like a, a, little, a small child riding a bike and you, and you suddenly see them take off the stabilizers and they suddenly suddenly dry, uh, ride the bike and it's a little bit wobbly but actually you're so proud of the fact that oh they've taken it and they've run with it and that's awesome you know and and, and and it, and it becomes a livable, breathable skill. So, and again, it's not fundamentally that they didn't want to do it. Sometimes it's they don't know how, or they are, yeah. have, or they have yeah. trouble meeting the activation energy to get going. Right. So, the activation energy is a big thing. So, 
Some people will do it because you've asked them to do. Some people do it because they want to do it from a community basis. Some of people will do it be simply to meet the legis legislative requirement. But um, the sites that do well are the ones that take hold of it and adopt it into the operational process and deliver it as a business deliverable rather than a separate piece. And do you find that something that you focus on in trying to, you know, if you're having a site that's not not getting in, trying to work out what what is it that's that's you know causing them not to have that activation energy? I think tend to be it, it generally doesn't tend to be around um, EHS specific aspects. It generally is is due to operational. It can be operation. It can be operationally blinkered by targets and objectives, right? And I think it can also be a matter of it just not being a priority right now. You know, so, so it's a number of companies I've walked into and it's like, yeah, well, we'd like to love to do a behavioral based safety program. But at the moment, our, um, uh, you know, we're really focusing on we're focusing on the number of um, uh, of deviations that we've got and the paperwork's not getting done correctly. And, all the, and it's just kind of that's the same behavior. Your behavioral program isn't a safety behavioral program. Your behavioral program is um uh, people doing things the way that they want to do it because it's the way they should be doing it way the program so if you can make improvements um, that go across from an ehs perspective and you can show them well actually yeah this is a technique that we use in ehs but it has a quality benefit it has an operational benefit it has a financial benefit then then sometimes people will adopt that you know in a bit in a different way And I suppose then, at executive level, when you're when you're coming into a new organisation and you're, I suppose, going in being the grey man and trying to work out, you know, what what is this all about? Where is everybody, um, you know, at in their in their journey? And when you've got, you know, perhaps you've got some resistance or you've got some executives that just the light bulb hasn't flicked on in the EHS world. You know, as a if you're like the most senior person representing the EHS flag uh, in the company, how do you start? influencing that that change because you know a lot of a lot of us will be well no we're really good at what we know um but when we've got to start moving into the world of well actually i need to, i now need to be influencing if if there's going to be change here uh, if i don't do something about it it's not going to happen well there's there's a couple of a couple of things really and i suppose you know without talking negatively i would say that there's there are certain companies where you will be the people that have to reach the activation energy and that's that lead by example piece. And I think the other piece really is around understanding, uh, you know, a lot a lot of the time resistance to EHS is just that the, the individual involved doesn't value it above what they are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, what their priorities are right now. It doesn't mean that they don't value EHS. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they don't want people to have accidents or that they don't want the environment to get affected. But what it just means is it's not, in their top five things that they're looking at right now right so what is important at that point is to understand and show empathy to what is in their top five what is what are their choke points what are their things that they are dealing with right now because unless you understand that you banging at a door with a with a you know with a very very busy operational director who has uh, you know the targets to beat to meet this year they've got uh, staffing issues they've got you know that all may result in an EHS aspect, you know, number of uh, number of slips and falls might go up and those other bits and pieces, but the root cause is the same. They need more staff. Their targets are, are too heavy. We've got to make sure that the people are, are achieving that. And actually, the safety then becomes an operational issue. So by we can get a safety outcome by helping them 
to reduce down their 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 number of five, right? So I suppose being mm-hmm. a team player in that environment and going in as a and using your non EHS kind of skills base and helping them to problem solve and those type of things can often then create a recipro- you know reciprocity. They, they want to then help you back, but also it's about leading you know leading by example and 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 showing them that actually these behaviours here that I'm approaching with regard to EHS. They're the same uh, behaviours that you can use for, for quality management control, uh, for financial control, and those bits and pieces. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, I've got my wheelbarrow full of stuff that I've got to manage. You've got your wheelbarrow full of stuff full yeah. of manage. And uh, the other aspect on that is timing. You know, it, it, it is uh, is there a better time for them? You know, I've I've walked into into boards where, you know, the company's not doing particularly well. Uh, this, you know, in the past, obviously, but you know, we go walking to boards where the company's not doing particularly well, and there is just not going to be the focus on EHS. There will be in three months sure. after they've hit the end of the year mm-hmm. and they've done other bits and pieces. So, trying to put forward a program of EHS right now is not necessarily the smart move. There are things that we can do to prepare the business for that next jump. There is there's work that we can be doing to influence and saying, hey, oh. Yeah, no, really, really uh, worried about your slip trips and falls in the area. Um, I appreciate the things are getting really hectic at the moment. Um, I'd like to put in a small um, inspection program to make sure that we're picking up any immediate issues. However, I want to hit that hard at the end of quarter three when um, your current operational uh, targets reset. So that gives the, the people operation, uh, you know, operations at a time to have a breather. But I also want to get that mm-hmm. hit then because then we get into the busy part in June and we want to hit slips, trips and falls before we get into June where the really busy stuff happens. So, um, and I think it's about phasing, you know, phasing that stuff in. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. And so do you think then we should be encouraging people kind of in our industry to understand organisational pressure a little bit more and and also subsequently to that to just generally just understand how the operations, you know, the operations of that business actually actually work? How, how can you, as an EHS professional, approach the challenges of the business in a way that meets the expectations of the business and supports the 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 profitability of the business if you don't seek to understand it so what i would say is you know uh, if you are able to get on operational excellence uh, you know training or you are able to um, spend time in other departments understanding there go and speak to the head of packaging and try and understand what his operational pressures are what is he interested in what are the things that he's 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 marked for what are the things are on his his scorecards and other bits and pieces you know let's have a look at those bits and pieces understand that but also understand how your products are made understand how your products are sold understand what the what the financial cycle of your company is and those type of things what's the best time to raise uh, aspects of capex when's the best time when are the directors most likely to be listening you know two weeks before the end of the bit end of the company year Probably not, because they're dealing with the end end of the company year. So, I think it's about if you study your own uh, business and you speak to other departments and you get involved in those other departments, you'll have a greater understanding of how the business runs. You'll have a better op- opportunity to to influence at the right times in the year and also the right people, because you know it's a huge amount of stakeholders um, for you to actually get on side in a business. You know. Do you find then in your experience that if you try and take that approach, your you know, the team, the department becomes more invaluable to that 
that organization because i think better integrated and i think value is value is driven from an ehs perspective by that virtue of what we can bring to the game right which is always difficult because anything any effort we put in is about reducing accidents happening and reducing cost and loss right so yeah so um yeah i think it, if you can be seen as a team player as team players within that organization to be there as a to support the business to to work with the business not just to hold the business's hand and feel sorry for them um <laughs> i think uh, you know or to come along and and you know sort of ask them where the where their um where their ehs report is for the accident that happened last week come on chop chop you know it's actually um okay we've had an issue here what can we do? How can we make this better all around? How can we actually look at the processes? How can we manage the system? What help do you need from us? How can we how can we look at that? Have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about doing that? Um, yeah, I, I think it's about, it does show value. So it, how do you become invaluable to the organization? How do you make yourself invaluable? I suppose it's by virtue of building trust within the other departments that you are there not to monitor and, and, uh, be the police because absolutely that's the wrong in my my experience that's the Couldn't wrong that's more. totally Couldn't the agree more. totally the wrong yeah. approach uh you've got to be a partner you've got to be um willing to sometimes carry them and sometimes uh, provide them with a, with a solution and sometimes to do it for them and and not because uh not because they don't want to do it but sometimes they just don't have enough hands to to to, to hold it right now you know so yeah and and you know we we all know when it comes to you know managing anything resources is you know whether that's you know time whether that's that's money for software or equipment or um, it's it's not always there and you know we we have to be realistic with with what we've got and you know just saying well okay can't you just get somebody else isn't you know yes we'd love to have somebody else but you know we can't do now so how can we how can we come up with pragmatic solutions that will um you know that we'll do for now and, and and maybe that we have to accept that there's a level of risk there that perhaps we you know we don't necessarily want but that's that's what it is for the for the time being that's it it's that, that's that, it's that tolerability of risk isn't it it's a, you know how do we make it as safe as it possibly can be and until we are able to implement a new program or you know how do we how do we create safe systems of work despite not being able to spend money on this or this because we have to make choices we do have to make choices do we get a new labeling machine do we get a new uh work at height uh mupe? you know it, it's it's a choice at the end of the day it's not my money in each of these organizations it's it's the organization's money and um what we spend out uh affects the profitability right so we we do need to make that but also we, might, we just might not have budget this year for it and interesting that what you said about choice when people have got have got choice and we want and we want them to you know kind of not necessarily always look to us to say well what you know what what should we spend our money on you know it's, it's trying to get people to actually own and embrace that risk themselves you know to, to see the well actually yeah do you know we can do that and i can see by doing that what impact that will have and it you know in, in a positive way because you know when we're trying to sell health and safety, you know, as you, as you touched on, we're often looking at try and prevent things. But actually, you know, when we're looking at health and safety and quality, we can look at efficiencies, and our efficiencies lead to lead to time and cost, and and a whole host of a whole host of other benefits that that actually the starting place for it is in the AHS world. I would say also, you know, harnessing the power of the individuals that do that process. So 
you know, whatever it is you're looking at, whether you're looking at a packing machine, lifting equipment, whether you're looking at, you know, a production fact, you know, a, a machine that produces widgets, it's harnessing the individuals that work with that thing on a day-to-day basis in and out and understanding what they think would make better better choices and involve them in the risk process, involve them in the decision making around improvements and ergo and, and those type of things because they have to work with that stuff. I don't have to work with that stuff. I pop in and pop out of the process, you know, and, yeah. and I'm on to the next thing. Those guys are working with that piece of equipment eight hours a day. They know what happens when it doesn't run very well. They know what happens when it breaks down. They know the workarounds that they put in place when nobody's watching, right? So it's it's about you know, if they're really sort of hammering on the door and saying, oh God, what we really need is, a, you know, we need a pneumatic lifting device. That's what we really need. Then why aren't we doing a CapEx and a risk process and trying to get funding for a pneumatic process? You know, why aren't we doing that? And if we can't do that, what could, what else could we do? How could we change the job in a different way that meant we didn't need that? You know, so can we just buy the equipment in smaller bags? Could we reduce down the manual handling? Could we automate or put a um, conveyor platform or something like that? that you know, it, what can we actually do with what we've got? And by harnessing those individuals that work with that area, facilitated through EHS and usually with an engineering bent as well, you can get that solution pretty quick. Going back on to you know, EHSs and trying to reduce outcomes, um, just interesting, is there any any particular incident from your career that you may have experienced, you may have been part of investigation on that that really stayed with you and and if so what did you you know, what did you learn from it? Well, I can't be specific around the bits and pieces, but what I would say is that, you know, very serious accidents and fatalities are always watershed moments in, in an EHS person's career, right? And I had one reasonably early on in my career. Um, so to protect the, 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 the details of that are unimportant in this context, but the lessons that came with it. So, so in terms of in terms of that, we uh, I was involved with investigating a quite serious accident, a very I would say a life changing event, and um, certainly from that perspective, and this was overseas, so it was uh, a, 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 you know not in the UK, and uh, when I was on scene, the uh, I, I, would, I was on scene about six hours, and then the um, the, the family of the individual. Um, got to the site and that was quite a harrowing conversation quite a harrowing you know with the management team and other bits and pieces what, what do they take away from that there is nothing more important than the preservation of human life right there's nothing more important than than, than ensuring that workers go to go to work or come to work and leave without incident okay and and the costs of that does not stop at an individual it affects families it affects you know friends managers and other bits and pieces and so anything we can do that prevents the likelihood of a situation occurring that leads to such a such a dramatic injury or any injury sorry can only have value and that you know it can only have value to to do that and i think sometimes when we when we do training with individuals and they haven't experienced loss uh, or they are, haven't experienced uh, workplace significant accidents, it could be difficult to get that across. And so I don't use shock tactics in any of the training that I do or anything no. like that. I don't think that's fair. But what I do um, get people to reflect on is, you know, if you have had, you know, a relative or somebody that's been in a significant incident, think about what that must, what that felt like and think about what it would mean to you if 
you know, or your family if you didn't come home this today. So it does get you thinking, and especially especially now that I'm a father, that 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 process of uh, separation. Because I was a young man when when this happened, but you know, a separation from family unit and the and the impact on that is 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 ever more magnified now. So you know, I think I think that's what you know to learn. But uh, but also it's it's the way that you deal with those processes and how you deal with people, how you would you know, that mindset that you adopt of you know, understanding the systems, being empathetic, um, looking, uh, understanding the situation that those individuals that are involved in that are going to be incredibly uh, emotionally affected, uh, and that you are yourself as a as an outsider going to be emotionally affected by that. What do you see as your kind of vision for the future of our industry? Where do we where do we need to go? Lucky that we're involved in so many aspects of the of the, the workplace. And, and 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 industry, um, it would be nice if our if our role wasn't required. And I think I think where we where we need to go is more down the um, the community culture safety as part of everything. You know, so with this bit of EHS well being governance and uh, those type of things. And I think that that unified kind of approach to business is where we need to be going. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't abandon all the, stru- all the structure of legislation and all, you know, all of the wonderful <laughs> stuff that everybody needs to do that job. But I think seeing the pursuit of EHS excellence as a function of business output rather than, rather than uh, something that we just badge under EHS, you know, because I think it gets, it can get lost underneath that. So if you were to look at the, the, the principles of, you know, keeping each other safe, you know, that approach, uh, you know, you could find that approach in, in, in HR policy. You could find that approach in, in well-being, you know, d- discussions. You can find that approach in, in lots of other things as, as people's innate nature to keep people safe. We just have a legislative framework in which that we, we, we say, well, we've got to keep that particular risk, that safe, that particular way. However, the intention of people, you know, constantly build um, and constantly improve and having that sort of infinite mindset of uh, and what I mean by that is um, that we shouldn't be thinking year to year what we're doing for safety we should be thinking how do we keep our employees safe and well and and, and healthy and happy uh, for the next 50 years you know it's it's really um, that bit yeah yeah no I I couldn't agree with you I couldn't agree with you more and I I really look forward in seeing the industry change and um, you know especially for the your mental health and well well-being um you know it feels like we've the can of worms is finally open and um thankfully really yeah oh ab- absolutely I think it's been it's been a, yeah. a, an intolerable time but actually i think uh, it has like you say it's it's wrenched the can open i think as well in a good way so you know i think that's that's very positive hmm. and and for me kind of you know certainly looking at where the, you know, the market is at the moment for uh for jobs and looking at um you know where employers at positioning themselves you know those who are genuinely wanting to make people's lives easier and work around you know home they're the ones that you know people will be flocking to and those those organizations as we come out and we get back to the new normal and uh, where they're calling everyone back into the office again you know I, I wouldn't you know wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing mass mass exodus as people you know realize that things are different and you know we want change and we want employees who value us as people as well as you know, as well as not just being a number. People that 
uh, where in companies where mental health and well-being or just well-being in general because we're also talking about physical well-being emotional well-being and and also you know um, financial well-being and all of those other things I think that the people companies that recognize that are going to see less attrition I, I really do and I think we can already see if we start looking at um, you know job job uh, profiles and stuff that we, you know, if you look at across LinkedIn and we get these flashes, these things that flash up, there's a lot more well-being stuff on there now. You know, there there, there are companies that are, you know, at least in, employing well-being leadership, and that can only be a good thing to support programs and other bits and pieces. But it's also thinking as an EHS professional in general, beyond the stress piece, and how can we make an impact uh, for 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 well-being tasks as well how can we have time for mindfulness how can we have time for um you know let, let's not always talk about regulations and gloves and and, and, and goggles and those no things, no exactly it's, it's having that as part of the part of the conversation moving away from just um you know we think about hazards oh, it's safety health safety health hang on a minute there's a whole there's a whole category over here that we want to start having conversations about yeah so we we um we we a couple of years ago we added in a social psychosocial uh, aspects to our risk assessments around things like you know people not working not alone working yes but people working alone now think about the yeah. think of it exactly that so so it's not people working by themselves and how do we make sure they're safe it's people who work alone and who are alone and how do we make sure that they're okay you know and how, how do we make sure that they're supported what processes and systems have we got in place to make sure that that uh, Bob who's you know, uh, call center guy who's been working remote from his flat for the last six months. Is Bob all right? You know, because he's got an ergonomic assessment and he's got a fire risk assessment for his house and he's got, you know, he's got a computer <laughs> desk. He's got an ergonomic mouse. But how's, how, how, how is, is Bob, Bob actually coping? doing? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it might even be when we go back to pragmatic solutions, as simple as someone picking up the yeah. phone and saying, hi, Bob, how are you today? Exactly. How are you yeah. doing today, Bob? How's it going? Yeah, that's not going to you know, cost it? thousands of pounds, is it? It's no. not. It's not. And it's about that. It's about those little bits and pieces, those grassroots things that you can do. And 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 that's where this piece, you know, you go going full circle back to when you asked me about, um, you know, team and leadership and other bits and pieces. It's about an empathy. How how can you show empathy? Do you know what? You can ring Bob once a week. I just feel like that is a uh, an aspect that will that has much bigger value oh, I, I agree and, and i think uh, a great name for a campaign how are you bob yeah how are you bob yeah, yeah absolutely. I'll, I'll maybe maybe steal that one um, adam clark brings you how are you bob absolutely. <laughs> exactly um so andrew last last thing then um we as part of the podcast um like to, to give away a, a book to, to to somebody so is there a, a particular book that you've that you've read and i know we've talked about simon sunek a lot that that you could you could recommend that we could give away yeah um so total safety culture the uh, Definitive Guide to Behavioural Safety and Organised Wellbeing. But T- Tim Marsh um, uh, is the, of Ankara Marsh, basically mm-hmm. he was, um, he's been very influential in, uh, in my behavioural based safety programmes and I've learned an awful lot of, uh, of him, uh, from him and um, uh, that and the DuPont Bradley uh, work. And um, I would recommend if you haven't picking up a book around organizational culture change brilliant yeah andrew thank you so much for uh for joining us that was um that was really great oh thank you it's a pleasure thank you for having me thanks so much for listening to risk sleep repeat if you'd like to appear on the show if there's a topic you'd like to discuss 
or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com. 